to me it's one of the most beautiful and, and yeah, intense experiences to build something, a very a bold mission with a very driven team and um, in between my two companies I basically also spend a bit of time in just purely doing angel investing and I like that as well but I need the adrenaline and I want to be on the field and actually do you know not just you know sit on the stadium I want to you know score the goal myself so to speak. This episode is brought to you by WHU, the Otto Beisheim School of Management. WHU is reshaping the way students learn about business, management, finance, and entrepreneurship through its innovative programs and partnerships in Germany and across the globe. To learn more about this globally ranked university, visit whu.edu today. Hey folks, Garrett here. Welcome to the latest episode of the Most Awesome Founder Podcast. We are here in Berlin with Christian Geiser, founder of Numa, not Numa Stays, which is their domain. Um, Christian, of course, is a VHU alum and uh, a very impressive founder. We're very much looking forward to hearing his story today. Coming to you from WHU on the banks of the Rhine River. In beautiful Fallendar, Germany, this is the best and most awesome founder podcast. A show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today. Christian, welcome. Thank you, Garrett. Excited to, to be on the show, and uh, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's... Uh... I think your story is a, a compelling and an interesting one, uh, another incredible high growth venture out of the Vehau ecosystem and uh, a topic that is near and dear to my heart as well, because you're in the business of doing the things that I love to do the most. So which is what traveling or experiencing, traveling. discovering or? Well, that's it. I think you, I, I love that you use that word experiences, right? Because I, I I personally, and I think many other people these days, have this ethos that um, I personally would rather spend my money on experiences rather than things. For sure. I think that's a big theme. And I think I always like to say to our team or to our investors that we're pretty much in the business of delivering emotions and experiences, you know, because what we're selling is accommodation. So people stay with us for several days for weeks sometimes even months you know and that's a very emotional experience you have a very big attachment to it and actually there's a saying in the industry that the the joy that you experience before your actual travel trip is among the highest intensity levels that you can experience because you know you build up all this initial expectation level um, and that's a beautiful um, yeah, business and industry to be in, but of course you have to meet the expectations of your guests. Yeah. Right, right. I, and I know, you know, as someone that worked in the tourism industry much of my my young life, right? It's. Uh, I did not notice. Yeah. yeah, I was a I was a ski instructor, river guide um, for all through college, and you know lived in mountain towns most of most of my life, and um, so saw many of those beautiful experiences that visitors would have and then also saw those experiences where people put so much energy and expectation into things that they were frankly stressed out as a result of it you know and you know it so much of it would could be impacted by the people that were facilitating those experiences. And, you know, the outcomes is, is not necessarily just a, 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 tra a trip or an adventure, but those experiences lead to wisdom and growth and so many incredible things that can, can come from that. 100%. I mean, it's, it's a mix between, you know, being transparent in terms of what you can deliver, but then also managing expectations. And like I said, it's a very emotional experience if someone, you know, visited you and in the mountain resort and went on a, you know, skiing exercise with you, that was a very, I assume, intense experience, right? Uh, something they have been looking for for months, most likely. And um, I think that's a very beautiful guest journey to to cover right and i think that's something that really 
excites me and because there's so much you can optimize in in that industry um but i guess we're gonna get to that a bit later yeah yes but let's first get to you um as i as i told you offline we like to start all of our episodes um you know learning a little bit about the founders because in in the end great businesses are made up of of great people and they have unique experiences that brought them to where they are so with that being said why don't you tell us a little bit about your kind of founder journey where you come from and kind of how you got to the place you are today sure so actually we have something in common because i actually grew up uh, in a mountain area as well in the beautiful black forest um for the first 18 years of my life, I actually grew up in a hotel, in a hotel restaurant that my family has been running for over 150 years. So I basically have hospitality in my DNA. Um, I swore to myself back then that I don't want to enter this industry. So uh, here I am. Um, after after this uh, childhood, I, I went to VAU was pretty much fascinated by the investment banking and consulting industry, like almost everyone there. Mm -hmm. I was very close to joining uh, Goldman in London in their private equity fund. Had already signed a contract, but then a few months before we, you know, after Silicon Valley trip, we, we discovered the business idea for my first uh, company, uh, which is called Kaufta, nowadays better known as, as Bonial. It's essentially a classifieds business for local shopping, right? So um, we help shoppers discover weekly offers from grocery ret uh, retailers, uh, electronics retailers. You know, we work with um, you know the Edekas, the Carrefours, uh, the media markets of the world. Um, I ran that business for uh, a bit over nine years. We scaled it to be the market leader in Germany and France, with you know 25 million users. Very nice, profitable business. Sold that then over various stages to the media giant Axel Springer. And three and a half years ago, I, I decided to leave uh, operations and then immediately knew I, you know, I wanted to build something again because um, to me, it's one of the most beautiful and, and yeah, intense experiences to build something, a very a bold mission with a very driven team. And um, in between my two companies, I basically also spent a bit of time in just purely doing angel investing. And I like that as well, but I need the adrenaline and I want to be on the field and actually do, you know, not just, you know, sit on the stadium. I want to, you know, score the goal myself, so to speak. So um, I rediscovered my, my hospitality routes. And um, three main things led us to, to start NUMA. And I'm always a big believer that for a business to become big, you need, you need to solve really fundamental problems, right? And the three fundamental problems that we're solving in the industry is one, like from a guest perspective, when you travel nowadays, you either have the choice between the big, boring hotel bunkers um, or the individual Airbnb host. Now, both have pros and cons, and what we're actually doing is we're combining the best of both worlds, right? So we give you the individuality, the neighborhood experience that when you go to, you know, Berlin Friedrichshain, that you can live like a local a person from Friedrichshain, but combined with the standards of a hotel, right? Um, and so you know what to expect. You have a quality promise. Um, the second point that uh, problem that we saw is that the industry is extremely analog, right? So 80%, I think there's a McKinsey study actually that 70% uh, or 80% of the process landscape can be automated. So similar to what Tesla has done in automotive, uh, we are doing an accommodation, right? So we're building a meta technology layer on top of the physical accommodation product with, with three main focus areas. Number one is the guest experience. So there's no reception, check in, check out works automated. You know, all of you guys know that how annoying it can be to have to wait at the reception for like 15 or 20 minutes uh, while you could spend that time discovering the neighborhood. Um, we have a virtual concierge that we're working on that gives you curated recommendations, where to eat, what to do, what to experience. Second point, uh, you know, do we do things like dynamic pricing, uh, top line improvements, so what the airline industry has done successfully for decades, we're bringing um, in a more aggressive way to the hotel uh, industry. And the third is, I would call automa automation. So um, 
for instance, every door is connected to the cloud. And that enables us to also operate much smaller locations than, you know, a big hotel brand. And if you look at the landscape in Europe, about 90% of the supply is smaller than 100 rooms, which is exactly our target range. And they are too small for the big brands to be operated. Now, the third topic uh, which led us to build the business is actually a lack of supply. Right. So in many big cities, uh, there has been a huge wave of regulation. And I think rightfully so, um, because, um, you know, um, there's a lack of residential apartments. So what city regulators have done to, to introduce basically a ban and what we're doing is 100 percent legally compliant. Right. So we reposition commercial real estate or older hotels for this use case. And um, yeah, so that was two, two and a half years ago, fast forward to today. Now we have 3000 units uh, under contract. Um, we're about to be the largest player in, in Europe um, with um, locations in Berlin, Barcelona, Milano, um, Rome. And our mission really is to build the most iconic um, brand in, in that industry. And um, yeah, it's been an intense ride so far, um, but um, you know, I'm very delighted to, to be on that mission. And um, yeah, it's, it's a nice purpose that we're building there. Indeed, indeed. I, maybe, maybe you can clarify one thing, you know, the, this spectrum of hotels on one end and the kind of Airbnb private owners on, on the other. Yeah. Um, as someone that you know, comes from mountain communities, small mountain communities that have been absolutely, you know, you look at these towns in Colorado mm -hmm. where there's only seasonal work, yes. right? The, the cost of living has skyrocketed because of the new work opportunities. So yeah. people are moving there, buying second homes there. Yeah. And then on top of that, you've got the Airbnb situation going on. Yes. So many of the towns in the region where I come from have tried their best to outlaw it, where they're saying, okay, you can only have short-term rentals for 30 days a month. Yeah. The small town I lived in, Gunnison, 5,000 people, they had dedicated staff that searched the internet and combed Airbnb looking for units to, yeah. to find people, right? So there's a fundamental problem there. On the flip side, you know, sometimes there's not enough hotel stock, but also people don't necessarily want that experience, right? Can you tell me where you guys fit in? I mean, just in terms of the business model too, do you own real estate? Are you contracting? Are you working with individuals? How does that, how do the mechanics work there? Yeah, yeah, very good question. So <clears throat> our our mission is to be the, the best and most efficient operator of, um, of real estate. So that means we either manage uh, or release a building, right? So the two ways basically mean if it's a management model, you know, we basically get a fee that's depending on the revenue and profit we generate for the owners. Or if we provide a lease, then we just pay a fixed or a hybrid lease commitment um, to the owners. So we ourselves, we're asset light in that sense. So we don't own the real estate ourselves. However, we have just recently announced a partnership with um, one of the biggest institutional real estate investors called LaSalle, um, with whom uh, in a separate, it's called a prop co-fund structure, we will also be able to acquire real estate. Um, so that's the, the technical business model part. Um, now, going back to the, the range between hotel and Airbnb that you mentioned, you know, if you ask me, where will the puck be going in a sports analogy kind of way? Um, in 10 years down the road, the boundaries between what is an Airbnb and what is a hotel room will probably disappear more and more, right? Because ultimately, the target groups that, you know, typical hotels and Airbnbs serve will also mix and move in between those more and more. And what's fascinating to see, you know, I think Airbnb 10 years ago was mainly used by people to save money. And now the target group has grown up, has more disposable income, right? And as a consequence, you also see that um, there's not necessarily a huge price gap in, in many markets anymore between a hotel and an Airbnb. And ultimately what matters more is what is the experience that you deliver and what is the expectation level of, of your guests. So as an example, there are two buckets that we think will grow very massively. 
Uh, one is um, work from anywhere, right? Um, we've all experienced this, but uh, you can't really do this in a normal hotel room that is 15 square meters uh, in size. Uh, so you need to have a different product uh, perspective on this, and we're building the product for that use case. Um, and the second component is that um, um, people might travel less, but then stay longer, right? They want to have a bit of a democratic experience in a sense of, you know, I want to be able to make my own breakfast. I, I you know, I, I don't need to go into the hotel gym, which is often not that great, right? So I rather want to have the recommendation where to go in, in the neighborhood um, and that's the new spirit in, in travel which we're building the supply for basically so one of the words that pops in my head when i hear this a little bit and it's one of maybe my critiques of and, and i'm an airbnb user and i'm a hotel user and i travel a ton um, but it's curation Yes. Right. It's like creating these kind of curated experiences. When you go to an Airbnb, you're kind of subject to here. Yeah. Here's a space. Go figure it out. Right. In, yeah. in a hotel, you're kind of yeah. in the hamster wheel of the, the same, yeah. you know, very little flexibility of choice. If yeah. I understand correctly, you're you're almost working on creating an experience rather than an accommodation. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, so that's a very good point that you're um, that you're uncovering. So for now, of course, we're very focused on delivering an excellent accommodation experience, right? Um, that's the foundation. Um, and ultimately, I always like to say that we're building free businesses at the same time, right? So you have the real estate part of the business, you have the technology part of it, but then you have the lifestyle component of it, right? And when someone stays in your um, in your property for, you know, let's say three days or an entire week, you have an amazing opportunity to make them discover additional things, right? So um, go to that nice breakfast cafe um, around the corner, which, you know, is, you know, off the beaten TripAdvisor track, you know, our experts have discovered that or you should try this and that activity. That's where I see us going. We're not there yet because we're very focused on the accommodation experience, but I'm a big fan of looking at this from a guest journey standpoint and then understand how many touch points you have. I mean, that's basically what many great tech companies have done in e-commerce or in, in the music industry, right? And if you uh, transfer that philosophy to uh, accommodation I think is insanely powerful um, and um, I also think that um, what you mentioned regarding hotels or Airbnbs there's so much search cost involved mm -hmm. right I see it myself when I'm you know about to travel you know I always am of course I've gotten very picky but um, you know the amount of time that you invest to find the right spot for you um, it's very long and we try to reduce that by curating the experience we want to give you um, a local vibe but with the quality level of a hotel. Right, right. Yeah, it's, uh, I think you have an interesting analog in place too, because Airbnb, you know, they've invested pretty heavily in this experiences side of things. And yes. at least from the consumer standpoint, looking at it, it seems like a, a sunk cost that hasn't really, I feel like they could have done that so much more better by instead of just saying here experiences in a place and here's accommodations in a place, tying those two things together more effectively. Yeah, I think I think it's still early days for them, but I think overall, <clears throat> I, from my perspective, it's quite impressive how they approach the whole guest journey. And I think they're really obsessed with it. I mean, I think Brian Chesky, the Airbnb founder, got the inspiration after reading the Walt Disney biography, I think, if I remember correctly. So um, I agree with you, it's still early, but the potential for this is huge, right? And um, I, I can definitely understand why they're pushing for this. But if you look at it in a comparison to, to us, right? I mean, um, Airbnb is the facilitator ultimately, um, but when you have someone that's actually staying in your premises for a certain amount of time, you have a lot more opportunities uh, and also should look at it that way um, to help and to facilitate, you know, these type of experiences. Right. Yeah, yeah. But also expectation management, it's not easy because tastes are so different. Um, but I think, you know, with technology, if you look ahead in five or 10 years, there's so much you can do and which would also provide us with additional 
revenue opportunities and um, ultimately the possibility to create delight yeah, and make make guests happy, right? And give them a smile. Right, right. I want to I want to switch gears and talk a little bit about this from the entrepreneur's perspective sure. because I think it's a really interesting business and and in some ways a bit of a challenging one, right? Um, taking the kind of owning the real estate out of the equation yeah. for the time being in a way you're kind of a two-sided marketplace with additional services in there of course you've got customers which are the the end users the travelers and then you have customers that are leveraging your technology that might be these property owners or, or hotel owners um, can you share a little bit about what you what your target customer what your kind of or at least early adopting or ideal customer looks like and maybe a little bit about the classic startup experience of what comes first, the chicken or the egg, and how you kind of manage those things. Sure. <clears throat> so for the per first part of your question, so if you look at the guest side, the demand side, uh, our average guest is 35 years old, which is, by the way, from a German perspective, 14 years younger than the average hotel guest. Mm -hmm. Right. So um, we always like to say that, you know, we serve the travelers that will dominate the next 10 to 20 years in travel, right? So the millennials and the Gen Z generation um, that don't want to stay in a typical hotel. Um, and um, about 70% of our travel use case is leisure, so not business driven. We're slowly moving more into business, but I think leisure will always play the dominating part. On the supply side, <clears throat> We have three main categories to keep it very simple. Number one are like smaller individual owners who have maybe one or a few buildings. Often in the past, they probably operated it themselves. Then two is family offices that are much more professional, right? Have a significant amount of real estate and then three developers that <clears throat> work with us to transform buildings from um, their traditional historic use cases, you know, let's say an office or a hostel into the NUMA uh, use case. And these are the three main target groups. Now to your chicken and egg question, of course, that's the, the holy grail. Um, in our business, um, the initial bottleneck is the supply side. So right, how do you get to the, the physical product? And um, since I'm very well versed with solving chicken egg issues, since I, that was basically one of the main challenges in my previous business as well with, with large retail organizations who are very conservative, similar to the um, real estate owners, you just have to understand what's important to them, right? So number one, of course, they're very risk averse. Huh? And we were fortunate to start a few months before COVID hit, but we used it as a massive opportunity and we built up a lot of proof points that our model is very strong, even in a, in a bad demand environment. So we managed to deliver 85% in occupancy over last year and similar numbers in the year before, um, because we have different use cases that we can interact on the demand side. So towards the real estate partners, uh, we could deliver a lot of trust and confidence that whatever happens in the market, we're always able to meet our obligations and our demand. And that's a unique opportunity. Um, and um, that basically accelerated our development on the supply side massively because, you know, in a crisis environment, um, and I also started my first company in a crisis right in 2008, uh, it's much easier for you to shine and to, to show everyone what you're doing differently. Right? And in the hotel industry, pre-COVID, it was almost like you know whatever you did if you had you know even not that great places made a, a fortune uh, in some of the cities we're in because of the lack of supply um so yeah we were just like really disciplined and focused on a clear uh, execution quality and then understand also you know how you need to approach and address those those real estate partners and i think yeah we cracked that formula quite nicely when I work with a lot of startups, you know, I, I work with a ton of startups and occasionally I get this, we're a B2B to C and I, I, I understand 
what everyone's saying, but I don't really like that term. And the reason I don't like that term is because in reality, it just means you have two sales fronts. It's almost two different entities with two different value propositions, right? Yeah. You've got the, the B2B, in your case, B2B slash enterprise sales, which requires yes. a, a different type of sales process, a different type of people leading that sales process, different KPIs, you're dealing with sales cycles rather than CAC and some of those traditional metrics. And then you've got the more what people think of on the B2C side, probably he digital heavy, you're looking at completely different metrics altogether. Take you, taking you back a couple years before you kind of reach product market fit, I always find that can be super challenging for a startup because you kind of need more people or you need more bodies. How did you handle having to, in your early stages, having to tackle two sales fronts kind of simultaneously? Did it mean you had to scale faster and require more capital or did you find innovative ways to, to manage that? Or did you do all the work yourself, which a lot of founders yeah. end up doing? <laughs> Great question. So, I mean, first of all, I'm very fortunate to have three amazing co-founders in, in the business, right, who each of them are more or less responsible for, for the three main business drivers that I initially mentioned, right? So Inga, who is in charge of the brand and lifestyle part, um, Swedish by background, um, who has a very strong uh, brand and design acumen, and second, uh, Gerhard, um, who built a fintech FX hedging company before who runs the tech um, side of the business. And then uh, Dimitri, um, who comes from real estate and, and private equity, who runs the real estate side of the business. So I focus very early on to, to build a team that covers all these critical success factors, right? Because I, there are a few things that I do very well, but many more that I don't do that well, right? And it's important to have this self-reflection. So I focused on that initially. Um, and um, then ultimately to go back to your, to your question. So if you look at the demand side, yes, that is very similar to what you see in e-commerce in mobile, um, in mobile gaming or in my previous more like classifieds driven industry where you need to be very data-driven, you need to understand the guest journey. So that, that was my background, right? So I had a, an unfair advantage, so to speak, because in my previous company, you know, you were competing with, it was mostly app-driven, so 90% of our business was app-based, and it's the cutthroat competition for user attention, right? And if you apply that philosophy to demand generation, in the hotel industry, it's actually a lot easier, in my opinion. Uh, although some of the hotel industry players would probably disagree with me, but um, so that was actually, I think, fairly simple for us, but mostly because we had the background. So we also knew what kind of team members we need to hire and what qualities and traits to look for. And then you need to experiment a lot um, and be very adaptive. You know, COVID for almost two years didn't really allow us to plan more than two weeks ahead. I think now from March onwards, it's a very different scenario. And, um, you know, you can see it in the data. It's, it's very nice to, to, to see that uh, the initial groundwork we did now really pays off. And then on the supply side, I think, yes, you're right. This enterprise sales analogy, I think, is a very nice description of it. Um, initially, I think, the bottleneck here is just that you need to build up your track record, right? So, um, and then get from, you know, one deal to the next and then think of it basically similar to how, you know, B2B enterprise sales software companies design their funnel. And, and that's what we're doing as well, right? And um, I think it was not really a matter of more money or more investment because ultimately it's more of a question like, how do you get a partner over the finish line in a sense of, yes, I trust you with managing a building that's worth 50 million euros or 100 million euros and I have a loan of 40 million or 80 million euros on it. So you better don't fuck it up. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, I think we just provided a good playbook and gave them the confidence that, hey, look at the worst crisis since World War II in that industry, which was driven by COVID. 
these guys delivered 85% in occupancy, which is, you know, three to four X of what the rest of the industry is doing. Um, and uh, you can trust them, right? So that's basically very simple ultimately. And you have to understand that in our industry, it's not just the real estate partners, but often, you know, they need to yeah, report or get the buy-in from the banks or financing partners that finance those buildings for them. I mean, it's an industry that works with a lot of leverage. And um, I mean, we're very fortunate to have a team that is uh, very strong in that area. Yeah. So I had a, an enterprise SaaS startup and we raised plenty of money, but it, it took pretty much a year and a half to get our first enterprise client yeah. up and running. Yeah. You know, I mean, it took almost a year from first touch to yeah. operations. Now we had technical integrations and other things. For you guys, did you land like one cornerstone, you know, property company? Was it a long process before you could get up and running or did you, were you able to yeah. hack that some way and, and get going faster? Yeah, great question. So we actually, um, we were quite fast because we landed our very first lighthouse building in the middle of Prenzlauer Berg in, in Berlin very quickly. So, you know, we we signed the deal, I think, two months after we had launched the company and then it went live one and a half months later. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm very fortunate that we that we managed to get this deal. It was not a huge building, right, but it's it's still to this day an iconic place uh, with very strong performance metrics. And uh, this basically, I think, cut our development time almost by nine or 10 months um, because, you know, then it's live. You can use it as a showcase. The performance metrics were strong. It's Berlin Prenzlauer Berg. I mean, there is... You know, there. there's lots of chains all over the world who have been trying to get into the market for 20 years and have failed to do so. And that created then an initial momentum on which we could build on. And, um, you know, I was quite sure. I mean, we had some discussions initially because, in, you know, back then the deal might have been expensive. In hindsight, I think it's a fair, fair deal for us. But um, that, you know, we just have to get started and solve the chicken egg issue. And that was our approach to do so. I want to go back to something you said that I think was really poignant and it, it's when you mentioned your, your co-founders. Yeah. Um, maybe it's a Vehau thing, maybe it's just a young person thing, yeah. but I see so many early stage ventures that are centered around an idea or an opportunity. Yeah, there's a problem attached, but it's an opportunity. And oftentimes it's not the right founders for that opportunity. The founder market fit isn't necessarily there. I, I hear the structure of your team, real estate, tech, design, your hotel background. Did you, was this a process that you undertook looking for those characteristics? And maybe you could share a little bit how that team came together, because I think so many founders, that's their dream scenario is to be able to cherry pick and find just the right people for this problem that you're tackling. Yeah, for sure. You're mentioning, I think, a super critical point, right? The founder market or founder product fit, which is also something that I pay a lot of attention to when we do our angel investment activities, right? But so um, it was not the only business that I looked into, right? So I also looked into the insurance market and the banking market because I'm fascinated by those. But to me, I asked myself, okay, me personally, first of all and foremost, what is the best fit for me, right? And ultimately, you know, when you start a business, you can never anticipate all the challenges and and black swans that uh, will be waiting for you. And it was the same case for us, right? I mean, COVID, I think probably many founders uh, would have said like, okay, I'm going to stop now. I mean, it's too intense. But, um, you know, if you don't have the perseverance for it, in other words, you need to love what you're doing, then you will not go through that wave of, and let's be honest, I mean, 
70 to 80 percent of building a company is frustration and overcoming it it's the 10 to 20 percent that is really you know the shiny bright light and uh, you know the rainbows um, so you have to love that and that's why i said to myself okay this is really a great fit for me because i know from my childhood but also it's something that i like and it matches my strength areas now when it comes to building our founder team it was pretty clear that you know we had these three components that are represented in my co-founders as major success factors so brand real estate tech um, it would add a fourth one which is financing and then fifth is the operations part right so to deliver really excellent execution quality uh, the other two we have basically covered now with uh, leadership team members um, but um, I think that's very critical that you reflect on this because a lot of teams are just too either too strong on one part of the business um, or they don't spend enough time on am I actually the right founder for this I mean a very common example is you know if if the business involves a lot of sales right and you don't have a commercial animal mm -hmm. on your team that's a big red flag and that's the same way how also investors will look at it right and um, ultimately you shouldn't fool yourself because again 80 percent is overcoming frustration so if you're not ready for this you will have a uh, lots of nightmares in, in that context so i think it's very important yeah, yeah. i mean I, I i'm interested to hear you know you built companies almost a decade apart yeah. you know i've recently launched a new venture um i mean I, i'm talking i'm getting close to two decades uh but um what i what i've discovered is the more experienced the older i've gotten the easier it's become for me yeah. to cherry pick and find those yes. you know great great co-founders and great partners when i was younger it was like calling my friends, like, who's not doing anything? I need help kind of thing, you know, trying to put wrestle together anyone that would believe my, my crazy vision. Do you, did you, have you noticed in your kind of second iteration or second successful iteration of being a founder, how your experience has changed? Yeah, hundred percent. It's, uh, it's a great topic. So, I mean, first of all, in the 10 years before I've made so many mistakes, right? So I can avoid them, you know, now I can do new mistakes. Um, but joking aside, I think, um, I think you have a much better reflection on what you need uh, on your team, because you know, you, you have, you have more time to identify and reflect on your own weaknesses, right? And you should ideally complement that in, in your team. Um, and that was for me the starting point, right? Um, number one, number two is to really understand also what you need to have in a in a co-founder or even in senior leadership team members for them to be able to endure over a long journey of you know ten years, right? And that's mostly in the early days. It's like how are they able to deal with frustration? Um, you know what really motivates them and you know, if you have a extended period of six, 12 months where you just, you know, bang your head against the wall because you get to hear no a hundred times, like, will they try to jump over the wall for the 101st time? Yeah. And I'm very fortunate to have that, but there were also, I mean, signs for this in their, uh, in their previous, um, careers right so i mean inga who has worked in, in um, investment banking for a long time uh, gerhard who built his own startup before and dimitri who has basically been in a very high pressure private equity environment for also very long for a very long time right so i'm always getting skeptical if people are doing something only for half a year or a year and then do something new um so i want to see that stamina and the perseverance and that was very important to me yeah um among many other things yeah. Yeah. you know it's it's interesting that you talk about like stamina and and perseverance yeah. because you know i think a lot about young Garrett founder versus older Garrett founder. Yes. And um, I think it was Michael Jordan that used to talk about this, but a number of athletes talk about when they get into the professional leagues, yeah. everything is moving so fast, 
right? Everybody's faster, everything's going at a, a crazy pace. And over time, the game starts to slow down, right? And they see things unfolding that they wouldn't have seen in their early stages. I feel like that analogy works very much as an entrepreneur. Um, your first journey, it's fucking chaos, right? You're just like, well, I don't know what to do next. Like, you know, what do I do? I just work longer. I work harder. You know, I stay up later, whatever it might be. And once you've gone down this road a few times, the game seems to, at least for me, seems to slow down a little bit and make a lot more sense. And I enables me to be more deliberate in my action. Do you find you've had, you're on your second quite successful venture. Do you see you as a founder different now than you did previously? Yeah, I love what you said about uh, the perceived speed um, in in your own uh, perspective. And I would love to hear more about what, what you just said. But uh, from my experience, you know, in my previous company, when I started, you know, it was always high adrenaline, super quick reaction, like everything had to be done immediately. And then over time, I had to learn, like, you know, also to manage my own energy a lot better, right? So I'm doing for like about four years now, I'm doing like uh, daily meditation rituals. Uh, if you had told me that 10 years ago, I would have told you like, what the fuck? No, I have no chance. Yeah. Like, uh, I'm not one of those, you know, um, people who need that, but ultimately I realized that it increases my performance by 20 or 30%. And I think ultimately, since you've seen so many semi apocalyptic moments, when people around you think, you know, the world is crashing upon you, you can just react much calmer and, you know, you know, and I've, I'm a big fan of, um, a book called um, Extreme Ownership. I'm sure you know it, right? Um, so the Navy SEALs and one of their principles is uh, relax, take a look around, make a call whenever a crisis happens. And um, that also helped us get, for instance, through COVID in a, I would say, very smooth way. Um, but yeah, 100%. And I mean, ultimately, that's just the value of, of experience, but also, you know, you need to force yourself to, to develop that calm a sense of, um, you know, how do I manage myself and then how do I manage the company? Because I think the, the intensity and the emotions that, that you show will be reflected in the organization right. immediately. Yeah. yeah. This topic of energy balance is really interesting to me. I mean, I yeah. pretty much did a lot of my PhD research on this, yeah. but um, my one venture that was fast catastrophic failure yeah. was right after an exit, I jumped right back on the horse. No, no pause. I mean, a few months. Yeah, but that's yeah. nothing. And it was just, yeah, I was a train wreck. I just didn't have the energy and that intrinsic drive yeah. to really like unlock all the challenges along the way. And eventually I just said, and I, it probably had some legs and I just didn't have the drive to do it, you know? And, and then I took a good five years off and kind of, you know, uh, re-energized and was yeah. ready to go again. Did you, were you deliberate in that three year break that you had? Because in, at first, if you had asked me this 10 years ago, I would have been like three years. That's a long time. If you ask me now, I'll say three years. Is that long enough? You know? Yeah. Just, just for the record, it was only one year in between, but, but still quite a, a substantial time. And, you know, ultimately, I mean, this is something that everyone has to answer her himself right so what i did um i i spent a lot of time in the us and brazil uh, as part of my previous company but um i didn't really spend almost any time in asia so i went like a month uh, to china a month to japan to just experience um society the industry the, the tech industry etc and then you know i didn't force myself like in a sense of setting a deadline of creating evaluation spreadsheets, you know, what opportunity is the best to pursue next. It's more like, you know, you feel it when the time is right. Probably that's 
you know, would be curious to hear how how you felt it then after after five years. But that's just you know, it's like this inner conviction that you need to build up. And I'm I'm not a big fan of you know, you sit in front of a spreadsheet, which some people do, right? And then grade like all the opportunities on a scale and then ultimately there's a number at the bottom and that's what I'm gonna do. I think that doesn't work, right? Yeah. So Yeah. It's uh you're probably like me. Like I have no shortage of new venture ideas. Like yes. I can't take a shower without coming <laughs> up with a new startup idea. Um and for me I have to kind of like park them and put them away yes. and try to forget about them. Yes. And every once in a while, there's one that just keeps coming back and won't let go. And I call it the itch that I need to scratch, right? To scratch. And then eventually, yeah. after time, it becomes more and more evident that this is something that's driving me to yeah. do it, you yeah. know? But I think oftentimes people will just come up with an idea. They think yeah. that this is my idea and and get attached to it, you know? And, and the Buddhists actually, I think the concept of non-attachment, right? Is a great practice for an entrepreneur is like, don't get attached to a vision or an idea. It's okay, maybe get attached to a problem, you know, but make sure that that's the problem that is gonna get you up every day yeah. and, and enjoying the journey of trying to solve. Yes. Yeah, especially the last point that you mentioned, like enjoying enjoying the building part right i think that you need to have an addition for the passion for the specific business but i think the building part is probably almost equally important right um and um yeah but i think there's only one way to to figure it out and i think what i observe in the industry is that for for many first-time founders the issue is then to deal with the fact that there would have been so many other ideas that I theoretically could have pursued. But, you know, now you need to be laser focused on the one thing and, you know, there's a few other news items popping up and you can't really get distracted by that. Yeah. yeah I mean, in the end, the ideas are the easy part. It's the execution that's, yes. that, that separates the, the entrepreneurs from the entrepreneurs, as Mark Cuban says. Yes, yeah. 100%. Yeah. So because we have an audience of many people from your alma mater um, and many of them are aspiring founders, the next generation is looking pretty strong and in my estimation, as someone that's, you know, been through this ringer a few times, um, I think you are now qualified to impart some wisdom. So Happy to, if what, it helps. Yeah. What advice would you give to someone, you know, maybe coming out of their bachelor's or master's and saying, I don't want to do the, the corporate thing. I want to, I want to be a lone cowboy and, and build my, my first venture. What would you, what kind of advice would you share? What advice would I share? So number one is, um, start as soon as possible. Um, the longer you wait, you know, the less healthy naivete you have and the more concerns will pop up in your head and in the beginning this nice mix between a slight overconfidence and a bit of naivete is quite helpful because you know you're not listening to the naysayers and you need that a little bit and number two is if you're talking about risk you don't really have much risk right and whenever i hear this it's like yeah you know we're taking this and that risk and in reality especially in in a startup, uh, you know, where you get outside funding, you don't carry any risk. Yeah. So the theoretical risk that you have is foregone salary. But hey, um, in my opinion, that's not really any risk compared to, you know, um, some of the Mittelstand entrepreneurs that started 50 years ago that were levered up until their nose with bank loans. So that's number two. Um, number three is <clears throat> I would really... Um, like I said earlier, try to reflect on <clears throat> what are my personal strengths and weaknesses and then be very honest to yourself, right? Because there's no point in, you know, let's take an example, like, of course, you know, it's nice to be the shiny commercial animal um, um, because you might get more exposure, let's say, 
to the outside world. But if you're, let's say, more an introvert and you know f focus more on, on, let's say, building a fantastic product, etc. Um, and fourth, I would just like really early on spend enough time to think about who do I want to build this with. I mean, if you're on your own, great. I have a lot of respect for that. I would never be able to do that. <clears throat> Most and foremost, because of the emotional roller coaster that you need to go through, and it's always nice to to share this with with someone else than than your own brain. Um, <clears throat> and um, yeah, ultimately, then just go out and and do it, right? I mean, you can spend a lot of time, you know, thinking behind uh, screens and the scenes, but um, ultimately, it's about doing the first step and then start from there. I think the beauty of our in the, of our university is actually that um, there have been so many success stories now. Um, and even the ones that did not work out so well, the people who have done this are, you know, following that have, you know, either had fantastic uh, other opportunities or built another great company. So I think that should give everyone a lot of courage that, uh, you know, it's the right thing to do um, if you're interested in that. Yeah, I always say get your failures out of the way while you're young. Because the ch chances are you're going to need to fail a few times to get it right. If you look at the... If you look at the numbers, statistically, yeah. successfully exited entrepreneurs in their 40s have already done this a few times and have been working for 10 or 15 years, you know, yeah. so. That's actually true. I think in, in the US and in Silicon Valley, I think the average founder age is significantly higher than here at, I think we will get there. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, it's a very important point that you mentioned, right? This failure tolerance and mm -hmm. people who have failed at least once or, or twice before will just have a much higher in my opinion success probability because you've already banged your head against the wall and felt it right just don't fuck up the same way twice right <laughs> <laughs> learn learn from your mistakes <laughs> yeah yeah but i've you know get up again and you know it's like i said what is the real risk even if it fails i mean I think the failure culture also in Germany has improved a lot yes. right, compared to 10, 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. Thank goodness. Yeah. That's really, really important. Yeah. All right. Two rapid fire questions to wrap things up that nobody likes, but I, I do it anyway. So number one, um, can learn a lot about someone by yeah. what they read. Yeah. Do you have a book recommendation? Is there something on your bedside table that you're you're reading? So I'm not a big reader, disclaimer. But uh, what I am trying to read at the moment uh, is a book about um, FC Barcelona called FC Barca. Because um, I'm just fascinated about the Catalan and Barcelona culture. And to see, you know, how our sports club is being run and what kind of inspiration we can take from there um you know how they just as one one anecdote i mean i didn't know that it was basically a dutchman johan cruyff who built the initial success of fc barca and then he while the wisdom back then was you know you can only hire players that are 185 in centimeters or taller he was the first one to change that and that's you know when um players like uh Messi and, and Iniesta were recruited into their um, youth academy. So it's just very fascinating to me. I have a little bit of a bitterness right now as, a, as an FT Bayern fan. I'm not particularly happy with, with what Barca's doing right now. They're going to steal away my favorite player. Uh, I can imagine. I can imagine. But I'm, I'm not a Barca fan in itself. Um, for the sake of my... So my, my mother is Italian. I should probably cheer for for juve um but um no it's just to me i like looking at sports in general to get some inspiration on uh, you know what we can improve because i think there are some similarities it's a high pressure environment i'm um, similar to what we're facing in the business world and um yeah so i i can recommend that generally another book that i read was i forgot the name but uh, since you mentioned him earlier the 
the former personal coach of uh, Air Jordan, of Michael oh, Jordan. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just listened to a great podcast episode with him, yes. his performance coach. Yes, his performance yeah. coach. He is the same coach also for Kobe Bryant and a few others. Um, and what one of the main takeaways for me was that uh, apparently Michael Jordan built so many routines into his day. He was very obsessed with that because you know he wanted to reduce the amount of decisions that he had to take so he can spend more brain power while being on the on the basketball court so just as one example even the routine how to tie his um his shoes um i don't know how to how you call the schnurzenkel in english i apologize but you, you you get what i mean so even that had to be on point and i've just found that fascinating uh, because I think building routines is an important part of, um, you know, the founder story in, in business. And decision fatigue, right? Like we only have so much brain capacity to make hard decisions. Yes. And, uh, I think Albert Einstein recognized that earliest yeah. on. He had a closet of all the same same suits. He always wore the same thing every day. And you see it, you saw it with... Uh, with Steve Jobs or even with Zuckerberg. Yes. And, you know, a lot of great leaders say, let's cut out the unimportant stuff yeah. so I can use my brain power for the most important stuff or my physical power in the case of, of Jordan. Yeah. Great analogy. But uh, so that's that's another one I, I can recommend. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And the last one is, let's talk about your musical tastes a little <laughs> bit. Um, our last guest, I know I made a little bit uncomfortable, poor Jochen, when he, he cautiously admitted that he loved uh, Berlin rap, which personally I do too. So what what great embarrassing music is on your playlist? <laughs> yeah, so I have to admit that I'm a big fan of house music and actually, fun thing for you, I um, between my two companies, I participated in a one-week music management uh, workshop, actually, that was run by the former uh, manager of uh, Swedish House Mafia and Kanye West in London. It was also very fascinating uh, to, to see the ins and outs of that. But um, also in terms of podcasts, I don't listen much to, to actual content podcasts because I'm, I'm uh, dealing with business matters enough in a typical day but so I'm right now what I really like is listening to the podcast of uh, in English you would probably call him vintage culture um, he's probably the most famous house artist in Brazil they call him more vintage I hope I pronounced it correctly um, and I've been to a few of his events in Brazil I'm a big fan of the country and so that's what I try to, you know, put a little bit of focus away from, from business matters. And um, yeah, it's a big fan of him. Yeah. Well, you, you, I'm throwing in one extra question because you kind of primed it perfectly, which is you said you're a big fan of, of Brazil. Yes. Um, you told me offline you're also a big fan of, of Sweden. Yeah, Sweden, for sure. Yeah, I mean... Um, Sweden is to me in a very idyllic place. I've been there, I can't even count anymore, like 130 times. Um, I loved the, the society. It's probably the most forward-thinking society. The, the style, um, my better half is from Sweden. I have a, a half Swedish son uh, now who is one year old. So um, yeah, I, I love the place a lot. Um, like I said, it's a bit idyllic, sometimes too idyllic, a bit like a fairy tale, I think, because everything is working so smoothly there. Um, but um, yeah, it's um, to me a big inspiration. Do you have uh, some other places in the world that you would like to see Numa next? I imagine, you know, this is uh, obviously a great business, but it has that nice little hint of lifestyle business in it too where you get to experience some great places and some great things? Yeah, so if, I mean, from a business perspective, we're of course very focused on Europe because uh, that's actually one of the few things uh, or one of the few industries in which Europe is actually leading the world because we have so many old things, right? Mm -hmm. More than anywhere else in the world. And, um, but if you ask me like long-term, if, if I could dream, like, where, where would I like to be? And probably ties back to where I had my best own travel experiences, right? So 
Uh, and I'm not saying we will go there, um, but just like theoretically, uh, long, long, long term. You know, I the time I spent in Japan was super fascinating. Uh, the discipline and the attention to detail in that country is just like amazing. And then um, the other uh, very fascinating trip I, I made uh, was actually already in 2007 with some of my VHU class mates, uh, Israel. Um, you know, the again here very different, but the sense of urgency, the, the, the massive melting pot of um, influences um, was, was very um, inspiring as well. And then there's you know, hundreds of other places, of course. Yeah. But um, yeah, I think in, it's easy to make a mistake in our business to just go where, yeah. you know, you would like to be. But um, we were very focused on Europe. Sure, yeah. sure. You know, that's the thing about travel is people that don't do it think that when you go somewhere, you can check it off the list. But every time you go somewhere, you just add two, 10 more places to the list that you didn't get to see, you know? Yeah, actually with me, it's my friends usually make fun of me because you know whenever i discovered something that i like i just want to go back there a lot mm -hmm. right so sweden is a good example and dig deeper and yes yeah get more local yeah to have this feeling of being like almost your second home right. um and i have a few places in brazil where you know i i would say that i know quite well um so maybe as a yeah you know, as a funny side business, I should uh, create some entertainment <laughs> tour company. Um, but it's not a good business to be in, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. But Brazilian house music. Hey, there's always a there's always a side hustle there somewhere. But sure. Sure. man, Christian, thank you so much. Like I, I still I'm, I feel like I'm wrapping this up with more questions and more things I would love to ask you. But we'll have to save it for the next time when Numa has dominated the world and I will beg you to, to join us again. But That's a good motivation for us and that's, should, that shall be our mission. Uh, Garrett, it's been great fun, um, enjoyed it. And um, yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for having me. Cheers, mate. Well, folks, that was Christian Geiser, co-founder of Numa. Stay tuned, in a few weeks, we've got a, a collection of tremendous founders and entrepreneurs on our next episodes. Um, until then, if you like this episode, please feel free to give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review on Spotify, and if you didn't like the episode very much, please just skip that part. Bis nächstes Mal.